Section 31, Chapter 13, Part 2 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. to Chapter 13, Part 2, The Content of Psychosis The number of psychoanalytic investigations into the psychology of dementia precox has considerably increased since the publication of my book on the subject. When, in 1903, I made the first analysis of a case of dementia precox, there dawned on me a premonition of the possibilities of future discoveries in this sphere. This has been confirmed. Freud first submitted a case of paranoid dementia to closer psychological investigation. This he was enabled to do by means of an analytic technique perfected through his rich experiences with neurotics. He selected the famous autobiography of P. Schreber, Denkwürdigkeiten eines Nervikranken. The patient could not be analyzed personally, but having published his most interesting autobiography, all the material wanted for an analysis was to be found in it. In this study, Freud shows out of what infantile forms of thought and instincts the delusional system was built up. The peculiar delusions which the patient had about his doctor, whom he identified with God or with a godlike being, and certain other surprising and really blasphemous ideas, Freud was able to reduce most ingeniously to his infantile relationship to his father. This case also presented similar bizarre and grotesque concatenations of ideas to the one I have described. As the author himself says, his work confines itself to the task of pointing out those universally existent and undifferentiated foundations out of which we may say every psychological formation is historically developed. This reductive analytical process did not, however, furnish such enlightening results in regard to the rich and surprising symbolism in patients of this kind as we have been accustomed to expect from the same method in the realm of the psychology of hysteria. In reading certain works of the Zurich School, for example, Mader, Spielrein, Nelken, Grebelskatschka, Eiten, one is powerfully impressed by the enormous symbol formation in dementia precox. Some of the authors still proceed essentially by the method of analytic reduction, tracing back the complicated delusional formation into its simpler and more universal components, as I have done in the preceding pages. One cannot, however, resist the feeling that this method hardly does justice to the fullness and the almost overpowering wealth of fantastic symbol formation, although it does undoubtedly throw a light upon the subject in certain directions. Let me illustrate with an example. We should be thankful for a commentary upon Faust, which traced back all the diverse material of Part Two to its historical sources, or for a psychological analysis of Part One, which pointed out how the dramatic conflict corresponds to a personal conflict in the soul of the poet. We should be glad of an exposition which pointed out how this subjective conflict is itself based upon those ultimate and universal human things, which are no wise foreign to us, since we all carry the seeds of them in our hearts. Nevertheless, we should be a little disappointed. We do not read Faust just in order to discover that also we are, in all things, human, all too human. Alas, we know that but all too well already. Let anyone who has not yet learnt it, 
go for a little while out into the world and look at it without preconceptions and with open eyes. He will turn back from the might and power of the too human. Hungrily, he will pick up his Faust, not to find again what he has just left, but to learn how a man like Goethe shakes off these elemental human things and finds freedom for his soul. When once we know who was the Procto-Phantasmist, to what chronological events the mass of symbols in Part Two relates, how it is all intimately bound up with the poet's own soul and conditioned by it, we come to regard this determination as less important than the problem itself. What does the poet mean by his symbolic creation? Proceeding purely reductively, one discovers the final meaning in these universal human things and demands nothing further from an explanation than that the unknown and complicated shall be reduced to the known and simple. I should like to designate this kind of understanding as retrospective understanding, but there is another kind of understanding, which is not analytic reduction, but is of a synthetic or constructive nature. I would designate this prospective understanding, and the corresponding method as the constructive method. It is common knowledge that present-day scientific explanation rests upon the basis of the causal principle. Scientific explanation is causal explanation. We are therefore naturally inclined, whenever we think scientifically, to explain causally, to understand a thing and to regard it as explained whenever it is reduced analytically to its cause and general principle. Insofar, Freud's psychological method of interpretation is strictly scientific. If we apply this method to Faust, it must become clear that something more is required for a true understanding. It will even seem to us that we have not gathered the poet's deepest meaning if we only see in it universal foregone human conclusions. What we really want to find out is how this man has redeemed himself as an individual, and when we arrive at this comprehension, then we shall also understand the symbol given by Goethe. It is true, we may then fall into the error that we understand Goethe himself. But let us be cautious and modest, simply saying that we have thereby arrived at an understanding of ourselves. I'm thinking here of Kant's thought-compelling definition of comprehension as the realization of a thing to the extent which is sufficient for our purpose. This understanding is, it is true, subjective, and therefore not scientific, for those to whom science and explanation by the causal principle are identical. But the validity of this identification is open to question. In the sphere of psychology, I must emphasize my doubt on this point. We speak of objective understanding when we have given a causal explanation. But at bottom, understanding is a subjective process upon which we confer the quality objective, really only to differentiate it from another kind of understanding which is also a psychological and subjective process, but upon which, without further ado, we bestow the quality subjective. The attitude of today only grants scientific value to objective understanding on account of its universal validity. This standpoint is incontestably correct whenever it is not a question of the psychological process itself, and hence it is valid in all sciences apart from pure psychology. To interpret Faust objectively, that is, from the causal standpoint, it is as though a man were to consider a sculpture from the historical, technical, and, last but not least, from the mineralogical standpoint. But where lurks the real meaning of the wondrous work? 
Where is the answer to that most important question? What aim had the artist in mind, and how are we ourselves to understand his work subjectively? To the scientific spirit, this seems an idle question, which anyhow has nothing to do with science. It comes furthermore into collision with the causal principle, for it is a purely speculative, constructive view, and the modern world has overthrown this spirit of scholasticism. But if we would approach to an understanding of psychological things, we must remember the fact of the subjective conditioning of all knowledge. The world is as we see it, and not simply objective. This holds true even more of the mind. Of course, it is possible to look at the mind objectively, just as at Faust or a Gothic cathedral. In this objective conception, there is comprised the whole worth and worthlessness of current experimental psychology and psychoanalysis. The scientific mind, thinking causally, is incapable of understanding what is ahead. It only understands what is past, that is, retrospective. Like Araman, the Persian devil, it has the gift of after-knowledge. But this spirit is only one half of a complete comprehension. The other, more important half, is prospective or constructive. If we are not able to understand what lies ahead, then nothing is understood. If psychoanalysis, following Freud's orientation, should succeed in presenting an uninterrupted and conclusive connection between Goethe's infantile sexual development and his work, or, following Adler, between the infantile struggle for power and the adult Goethe and his work, an interesting proposition would have been solved. We should have learned how a masterpiece can be reduced to the simplest thinkable elements, which are universal and to be found working within the depths of everything and everybody. But did Goethe construct his work to this end? Was it his intention that it should be thus conceived? It must be sufficiently clear that such an understanding, though undoubtedly scientific, would be entirely, utterly, beside the mark. This statement is valid for psychology in general. To understand the psyche causally means to understand but half of it. The causal understanding of Faust enlightens us as to how it became a finished work of art, but reveals nothing of the living meaning of the poet. That meaning only lives if we experience it in and through ourselves. Insofar as our actual present life is for us something essentially new and not a repetition of all that has gone before, the great value of such a work is to be seen not in its causal development, but in its living reality for our own lives. We should be indeed deprecating a work like Faust if we were only to regard it as something that has been perfected and finished. It is only understood when conceived as a becoming and as an ever-new experiencing. Thus we must regard the human psyche. Only on one side is the mind a has-been, and as such subordinate to the causal principle. On the other side, the mind is a becoming that can only be grasped synthetically or constructively. The causal standpoint asks how it is that this actual mind has become what it appears today. The constructive standpoint asks how a bridge can be built from this actual psyche to its own future. Just as the causal method finally reaches the general principles of human psychology by the analysis and reduction of individual events, so does the constructive standpoint reach aims that are general by the synthesis of individual tendencies. The mind is a point of passage and thus necessarily determined from two sides. 
on the one side, it offers a picture of the precipitate of the past, and on the other side, a picture of the germinating knowledge of all that is to come, insofar as the psyche creates its own future. What has been is, on the one hand, the result and apex of all that was, as such it appears to the causal standpoint. On the other hand, it is an expression of all that is to be. The future is only apparently like the past, but in its essence always new and unique. The causal standpoint would like to invert this sentence. Thus the actual formula is incomplete, germ-like, so to say, in relation to what is to be. To get any conception of this expression of what is to be, we are forced to apply a constructive interest to it. I almost felt myself tempted to say a scientific interest, but modern science is identical with the causal principle. So long as we consider the actual mind causally, that is, scientifically, we elude the mind as a becoming. The other side of the psyche can never be grasped by the exclusive use of the causal principle, but only by means of the constructive standpoint. The causal standpoint reduces things to their elements. The constructive standpoint elaborates them into something higher and more complicated. This latter standpoint is necessarily a speculative one. Constructive understanding is, however, differentiated from scholastic speculation because it imposes no general validity, but only subjective validity. When the speculative philosopher believes he has comprehended the world once for all by his system, he deceives himself. He has only comprehended himself and then naively projected that view upon the world. In reaction against this, the scientific method of the modern world has almost put an end to speculation and gone to the other extreme. It would create an objective psychology. In opposition to such efforts, the stress which Freud has placed upon individual psychology is of immortal merit. The extraordinary importance of the subjective in the development of the objective mental process was thus first brought adequately into prominence. Subjective speculation lays no claim to universal validity. It is identical with constructive understanding. It is a subjective creation, which, looked at externally, easily seems to be a so-called infantile fantasy, or at least an unmistakable derivative of it. From an objective standpoint, it must be judged as such, insofar as objective is regarded as identical with scientific or causal. Looked at from within, however, constructive understanding means redemption, creation. That is the great redemption from suffering and easiness of living. Starting from these considerations as to the psychology of those mental patients to whom the Schreber case belongs, we must, from the objective scientific standpoint, reduce the structural fantasy of the patient to its simple and most generally valid elements. This Freud had done, but that is only half of the work to be done. The other half is the constructive understanding of Schreber's system. The question is, what end, what freedom did the patient hope to achieve by the creation of his system? The scientific thinker of today will regard this question as inappropriate. The psychiatrist will certainly smile at it, for he is thoroughly assured of the universal validity of his causalism. He knows the psyche merely as something that is made, descendant, reactive. Not uncommonly there lurks the unconscious prejudice that the psyche is a brain secretion. Looking at such a morbid system without preconception, and asking ourselves what goal this delusional system is aiming at, 
we see, in fact, firstly, that it is endeavoring to get at something, and secondly, that the patient also devotes all his willpower to the service of the system. There are patients who develop their delusions with scientific thoroughness, often dragging in an immense material of comparison and proof. Schreber certainly belongs to this class. Others do not proceed so thoroughly and learnedly, but content themselves with heaping up synonymous expressions for that at which they are aiming. The case of the patient I have described, who assumes all kinds of titles, is a good instance of this. The patient's unmistakable striving to express something through and by means of his delusion, Freud conceives retrospectively, as the satisfaction of his infantile wishes by means of imagination. Adler reduces it to the desire for power. For him, the delusion formation is a manly protest, a means of gaining security for himself against his menaced superiority. Thus characterized, this struggle is likewise infantile, and the means employed, the delusional creation, is infantile, because insufficient for its purpose. One can therefore understand why Freud declines to accept Adler's point of view. Freud, rightly on the whole, subsumes this infantile struggle for power under the concept of the infantile wish. The constructive standpoint is different. Here, the delusional system is neither infantile nor, upon the whole, eo ipso pathological, but subjective, and hence justified within the scope of the subjective. The constructive standpoint absolutely denies the conception that the subjective fantasy creation is merely an infantile wish, symbolically veiled, or that it is merely that in a higher degree. It denies that it is a convulsive and egoistic adhesion to the fiction of its own superiority, insofar as these are to be regarded as finalistic explanations. The subjective activity of the mind can be judged from without, just as one can, in the end, so judge everything. But this judgment is inadequate, because it is the very essence of the subjective that it cannot be judged objectively. We cannot measure distance in pints. The subjective can only be understood and judged subjectively, that is, constructively. Any other judgment is unfair and does not meet the question. The absolute credit which the constructive standpoint confers upon the subjective naturally seems to the scientific spirit as an utter violation of reason. But this scientific spirit can only take up arms against it so long as the constructive is not avowedly subjective. The constructive comprehension also analyzes, but it does not reduce. It decomposes the delusion into typical components. What is to be regarded as the type at a given time is shown from the attainment of experience and knowledge reached at that time. Even the most individual delusional systems are not absolutely unique, occurring only once, for they offer striking and obvious analogies with other systems. From the comparative analysis of many systems, the typical formations are drawn. If one can speak of reduction at all, it is only a question of reduction to general type, but not to some universal principle obtained inductively or deductively, such as sexuality or struggle for power. This paralleling with other typical formations only serves for a widening of the basis upon which the construction is to be built. If one were to proceed entirely subjectively, one would go on constructing in the language of the patient and in his mental range. One would arrive at some structure which was illuminating to the patient and to the investigator of the case, but not to the outer scientific public. 
the public would be unable to enter into the peculiarities of the speech and thought of the individual case in question without further help. The works of the Zurich School referred to contain careful and detailed expositions of individual material. In these materials, there are very many typical formations which are unmistakably analogies with mythological formations. There arose from the perception of this relationship a new and valuable source for comparative study. The acceptance of the possibility of such a comparison will not be granted immediately, but the question is only whether the materials to be compared really are similar or not. It will also be contended that pathological and mythological formations are not immediately comparable. But this objection must not be raised a priori, for only a conscientious comparison can determine whether any true parallelism exists or not. At the present moment, all we know is that they are both structures of the imagination, which, like all such products, rest essentially upon the activity of the unconscious. Experience must teach us whether such a comparison is valid. The results hitherto obtained are so encouraging that further work along these lines seems to me most hopeful and important. I made practical use of the constructive method in a case which Flournoy published in the Archives de Psychologie, although he offered no opinion as to its nature at that time. The case dealt with a rather neurotic young lady who, in Flournoy's publication, described how surprised she was at the connected fantasy formations which penetrated from the unconscious into the conscious. I subjected these fantasies, which the lady herself reproduced in some detail, to my constructive methods and gave the results of these investigations in my book, The Psychology of the Unconscious. This book has, I regret to say, met with many, perhaps inevitable, misunderstandings. But I have had one precious consolation, for my book received the approval of Flournoy himself, who published the original case which he knew personally. It is to be hoped that later works will make the standpoint of the Zurich School intelligible to a wider public. Whoever, by the help of this work, has taken the trouble to grasp the essence of the constructive method will readily imagine how great are the difficulties of investigation and how much greater still are the difficulties of objective presentation of such investigations. Among the many difficulties and opportunities for misunderstanding, I should like to adduce one difficulty which is especially characteristic. In an intensive study of Schreber's or any similar case, it will be discovered that these patients are consumed by the desire for a new world philosophy, which may be of the most bizarre kind. Their aim is obviously to create a system such as will help them in the assimilation of unknown psychical phenomena, that is, enable them to adapt their own unconscious to the world. This arrangement produces a subjective system which must be considered as a necessary transition stage on the path to the adaptation of their personality in regard to the world in general. But the patient remains stationary at this transitory stage and assumes his subjective view is the world's. Hence, he remains ill. He cannot free himself from his subjectivism and does not find the link to objective thinking, that is, to society. He does not reach the real summit of self-understanding, for he remains with a merely subjective understanding of himself. But a mere subjective understanding is not real and adequate. As Feuerbach says, understanding is only real when it is in accord with that of some other rational beings. Then it becomes objective and the link with life is reached. I am convinced that not a few will raise the objection that, in the first place, 
the psychological process of adaptation does not proceed by the method of first creating a world philosophy. Secondly, that it is, in itself, a sign of unhealthy mental disposition even to make the attempt to adapt oneself to the way of a world philosophy. Undoubtedly, there are innumerable persons who are capable of adaptation without creating any preliminary philosophy. If they ever arrive at any general theory of the world, it is always subsequently. But, on the other hand, there are just as many who are only able to adapt themselves by means of a preliminary intellectual formulation. To everything which they do not understand, they are unable to adapt themselves. Generally, it comes about that they do adapt themselves just insofar as they can grasp the situation intellectually. To this latter group seem to belong all those patients to whom we have been giving our consideration. Medical experience has taught us that there are two large groups of functional nervous disorders. The one embraces all those forms of disease which are designated hysterical, the other all those forms which the French school has designated psychasthenic. Although the line of demarcation is rather uncertain, one can mark off two psychological types which are obviously different. Their psychology is diametrically opposed. I have called these the introverted and extroverted types. The hysteric belongs to the type of extroversion, the psychasthenic to the type of introversion, as does dementia precox, insofar as we know it today. This terminology, introversion and extroversion, is bound up with my way of regarding mental phenomena as forms of energy. I postulate a hypothetical, fundamental striving, which I designate libido. In the classical use of the word, libido never had an exclusively sexual connotation as it has in medicine. The word interest, as Claparede once suggested to me, could be used in this special sense, if this expression had today a less extensive application. Bergson's concept, Ilan Vital, would also serve if this expression were less biological and more psychological. Libido is intended to be an energizing expression for psychological values. The psychological value is something active and determining. Hence, it can be regarded from the energetic standpoint without any pretense of exact measurement. The introverted type is characterized by the fact that his libido is turned towards his own personality to a certain extent. He finds within himself the unconditioned value. The extroverted type has his libido to a certain extent externally. He finds the unconditioned value outside himself. The introvert regards everything from the aspect of his own personality, the extrovert is dependent upon the value of his object. I must emphasize the statement that this question of types is the question of our psychology, and that every further advance must probably proceed by way of this question. The difference between these types is almost alarming in extent. So far there is only one small preliminary communication by myself on this theory of type, which is particularly important for the conception of dementia precox. On the psychiatric side, Gross has called attention to the existence of two psychological types. His two types are, one, those with limited but deep consciousness, and two, those with broad but superficial consciousness. The former correspond to my introverted, and the latter to my extroverted type. In my article, I have collected some other instances, among which I would especially call attention to the striking description of the two types given by William James in his book on pragmatism. Friedrich Theodor Fischer has differentiated the two types very wittily by his division of the learned into reason-mongers and matter-mongers. 
In the sphere of psychoanalysis, Freud follows the psychology of extroversion. The irreconcilable opposition between the views of Freud and those of Adler is readily explained by the existence of two diametrically opposed psychological types which view the same things from entirely different aspects. An extrovert can hardly, or only with great difficulty, come to any understanding with an introvert on any delicate psychological question. An extrovert can hardly conceive the necessity which compels the introvert to conquer the world by means of a system. And yet this necessity exists. Otherwise we should have no philosophical systems and dogmas presumed to be universally valid. Civilized humanity would be only empiricists and the sciences only the experimental sciences. Causalism and empiricism are undoubtedly mighty forces in our present-day mental life, but it may come to be otherwise. This difference in type is the first great obstacle which stands in the way of an understanding concerning fundamental conceptions of our psychology. A second objection arises from the circumstance that the constructive method, faithful to itself, must adapt itself to the lines of this delusion. The direction along which the patient develops his morbid thoughts has to be accepted seriously and followed out to its end. The investigator thus places himself at the standpoint of the psychosis. This procedure may expose him to the suspicion of being deranged himself, or at least risks a misunderstanding, which is considered terribly disgraceful. He may himself have some world philosophy. The confirmation of such a possibility is as bad as being unscientific. But everyone has a world philosophy, though not everyone knows he has. And those who do not know it have simply an unconscious and therefore inadequate and archaic philosophy. But everything psychological that is allowed to remain in the mind neglected and not developed remains in a primitive state. A striking instance of how universal theories are influenced by unconscious archaic points of view has been furnished by a famous German historian whose name matters to us not at all. This historian took it for granted that once upon a time people propagated themselves through incest, for in the first human families the brother was assigned to the sister. This theory is wholly based on his still unconscious belief in Adam and Eve as the first and only parents of mankind. It is on the whole better to discover for oneself a modern world philosophy, or at least to make use of some decent system which will prevent any errors of that kind. One could put up with being despised as the possessor of a world philosophy, but there is a greater danger. The public may come to believe the philosophy, beaten out by the constructive method, is to be regarded as a theoretical and objectively valid insight into the meaning of the world in general. I must now again point out that it is an obstinate, scholastic misunderstanding not to be able to distinguish between a world philosophy which is only psychological and an extra-psychological theory which concerns the objective thing. It is absolutely essential that the student of the results of the constructive method should be able to draw this distinction. In its first results, the constructive method does not produce anything that could be called a scientific theory. It furnishes the psychological lines of development, a path, so to say. I must here refer the reader to my book, Psychology of the Unconscious. The analytic reductive method has the advantage of being much simpler than the constructive method. The former reduces to well-known universal elements of an extremely simple nature. The latter has, with extremely complicated material, to construct the further path to some often unknown end. 
This obliges the psychologist to take full account of all those forces which are at work in the human mind. The reductive method strives to replace the religious and philosophical needs of man by their more elementary components, following the principle of the nothing but, as James so aptly calls it. But to construct a right, we must accept the developed aspirations as indispensable components, essential elements of spiritual growth. Such work extends far beyond empirical concepts, but that is in accordance with the nature of the human soul, which has never hitherto rested content with experience alone. Everything new in the human mind proceeds from speculation. Mental development proceeds by way of speculation, never by way of limitation to mere experience. I realize that my views are parallel with those of Bergson, and that in my book the concept of the libido, which I have given, is a concept parallel to that of Ilan Vital. My constructive method corresponds to Bergson's intuitive method. I, however, confine myself to the psychological side and to practical work. When I first read Bergson a year and a half ago, I discovered, to my great pleasure, everything which I had worked out practically, but expressed by him in consummate language and in a wonderfully clear philosophic style. Working speculatively with psychological material, there is a risk of being sacrificed to the general misunderstanding which bestows the value of an objective theory upon the line of psychological evolution thus elaborated. So many people feel themselves in this way at pains to find grounds whether such a theory is correct or not. Those who are particularly brilliant even discover that the fundamental concepts can be traced back to Heraclitus or someone even earlier. Let me confide to these knowing folk that the fundamental ideas employed in the constructive method stretch back even beyond any historical philosophy, namely, to the dynamic views of primitive peoples. If the result of the constructive method were scientific theory, it would go very ill with it, for then it would be a falling back into the deepest superstition. But since the constructive method results in something far removed from scientific theory, the great antiquity of the basic concepts therein must speak in favor of its extreme correctness. Not until the constructive method has presented us with much practical experience can we come to the construction of a scientific theory, a theory of the psychological lines of development. But we must, first of all, content ourselves with confirming these lines individually. End of section 31. Chapter 13, part 2. Recording by Olivia.